everyone, this is Sarah from Better Babies and welcome to a podcast special. We are extremely lucky to be joined by one of the Better Babies advisors, Christoph Sauerwein, who is a psychotherapist um, with a specialism in developmental trauma. And he's also academic director of ICAD, which is the International Conference on Addiction and Associated Disorders. So hello, Christoph, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for hosting me. Hello. So, um, Christoph and I started a discussion a couple of weeks ago based on something that I saw in the news, which I'm sure many people saw, that frankly horrified me on many levels. Um, I'm sure a lot of you saw that in the press there was um, a big uh, uncovering of effectively some very meaty bribes going on in the US where parents were paying huge amounts of money to cheat their way or their children's way into Ivy League um, universities. Now, my initial reaction to that was how horrendous for the children uh, involved. And I know there are many other moral implications, but my first thought was this is just dreadful and it's such a terrible state of affairs for our society. So it's something that kicked off a discussion between Christoph and I on how parents, um, either inadvertently or, or not, um, can actually end up doing things which may, they may believe is in the child's best interest, but may actually have quite the reverse effect. Um, so, I mean, Christoph, starting off um, on this whole subject, you know, we know that this whole tiger mum phenomenal um, is, is pretty big in, in especially major cities and is somewhat, I guess, exemplified in its extreme by this type of behaviour. Is this something you think we're seeing more of um, recently? Um, we're probably more aware of that because it becomes public in the media. and We have this scandal, which is um, um, awful and with a lot of things we can we can discuss about is it happening more um i'm not sure it's difficult it's difficult to assess um it's it's surely happening differently with different ways now let's look back old civilization tradition um we've always found way to try to promote our children and put them first and 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 prepare them for a better future we have signs in medieval civilization old civilization that um parents could go at any length for the children so i'm not sure it's new i think it's it's more discussed and, and maybe this is something good that we put that under the lights we um we make people aware through the media that things like that are happening um, so just let's pause just uh, on, on something and then we'll, we'll get to the profoundness of the problem here. It is shocking what I read in the press about the, the bribe and the SAT. I was shocked. Um, I'm not sure I was directly shocked by you know, money and bribe. I was shocked for the children. Because what is at stake here is basically parents not believing in their children to the point that they think they can buy success for the children, they can trade money against um, higher achievement. It's extremely sad because it says basically, I don't believe in you, my son. So what sort of parents are they to go there? So actually willing the best for the children is actually thinking the worst. 
Interesting. That's not pleasant at all. Now, what are the consequences for the child? He is deprived of any chance of succeeding or failing or trying. No good for self-esteem. Very good to inform a sense of being a fraud. It is shaming and belittling. And if then things go wrong in the said university, it is also a setup for a reinforcement of feeling really less than inadequate. It has major impact on, on, on the child or the, the young the younger adult. And then what does this suggest about the relationship between a parent and a child? It's a betrayal. It's a complete betrayal. It's almost a rejection. It's a, um, an attack to the identity and to the humanity of the child. So I'm just wondering what will be the relationship between this mother and this child for the future? There's a breach of confidence here. And especially when it has been done in the back. If I was, such, if, if I was one of the children involved there, I would be absolutely raging at my parents. I would re-question all the, the, the nature of the fabric of that relationship between me and my parents. I feel really sad for them. And angry at the parents, but most importantly, I feel sad, and I can imagine the trauma here. It is traumatic. Yeah, and it's the irony that wanting the best, quote unquote, which is I'm sure what the parents would say, actually has completely the reverse. And not to mention, if it was to work and a child was to be brought onto a place in a university where maybe they couldn't have earned it themselves, then they're going to be in a position where they are maybe not able to cope as well. It is likely. Or not, so we don't know. But we, we, <laughs> we're, not, we're not starting the right foot here. Um, throwing our children into an impossible situation, it's a setup. So again, I'm going back to, I want the best for my children. And actually what's happen ha happening is very likely to be the worst. So on that subject, every parent no doubt will say I want the best for my child so the biggest question is that's obviously an extreme um, now at what point does wanting the best for your child quote unquote become a problem in your opinion it's a difficult question so let's explore that slowly uh, the statement I want the best for my children is an, a human normal good statement so that's not in question so then comes the nature of the understanding of that best. Do I want my best for my children? Do I want their best? Where, where do I pose and reflect on the meaning of best? There is a tradition in our civilization where parents know better than children. And why that? Because I'm your father, because I'm your mother, because I'm the grown-up, you're the little one. Um, and, and there are some merits about that, so let's not go against that, because the act of parenting is to protect, to elicit, to invite, to get the child to flourish. Now, what is best here? Who are we to know what is the best for another human being? Um, so we have preconceived ideas. We we coming from traditions where actually the best for the child was to probably take over the land and farm it for a thousand years. And that was not up for discussion. 
the civilization has evolved and actually there are many, many, many choices for a child to, to run his own life or her own life. So again, who are we as parents to decide for them? So we can invite, we can guide. When I was, oh, that's probably 40 years ago, we had, we had a joke around. Um, the, the joke was, you have to apply for Eton before the conception of your child. Um, so uh, <laughs> the joke here is twofold. The first thing is that you don't even know whether he's a boy or girl. Um, so that, that shows really what we believe is best. I mean, it might be an impossible best. Um, so the joke was about you know waiting list and things like that. But anyway, uh, and then how do we know that the child will grow up into a teen and will most benefit from Eton? And there's nothing right or wrong about Eton. It's not that's that's not the problem. How do we know? How do we know who they will be, they will become? It's impossible. So how do we support our children becoming themselves? Is the question. Well, I guess that's the biggest point, is do you define best, what is best for your child, as best by societal definitions, whatever they may be, or do you define best as what you just said, which is effectively the best version they could be? Impossible question to answer, so we have to be humble here. A lot of humility. We have to challenge ourselves as, as parents. What is the meaning we ascribe to best? I, I had a father who, who was a lawyer and he told me never become a lawyer because that's hell. But he was speaking for himself. My sister became a lawyer actually. She, she, she was quite happy becoming a lawyer. I never thought about it. Um, but again, um, are, we, are we projecting onto our children and then are we creating a, a program of life for life for them? And that's damaging. So why is it damaging? Because there's nothing wrong becoming a lawyer, right? But it's damaging if it is clearly not achievable or desirable from the child perspective. How can we know when a child is five years old that he or she will take over the family business? He or she will um, do uh, I don't know, a white-collar job because I'm coming from a blue-collar origin and I believe that's going to be a better life. Um, to some extent, we have hopes, yes, but no one says it's going to be a better life for the child. I think no children can have a, 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 a clear vision of what he or she will become before late adolescence. So everything we proposed before to the child is a wishful hypothesis. Well, you even see this now. I mean, speaking in London, for example, you see that you have to sign your child up to a nursery with the view to get into the prep school to the, fellow, the following school. And this happens, as you said, with the Eton example, from basically the day that they're born, mm -hmm. even. And it is this notion of you know, setting them up or providing them opportunities. But the question is, what is the effect on that child if you set them up into a situation which doesn't suit them, which is not, as you said, achievable? So what is the actual tangible effect, do you think, of putting in a child in a situation that is not achievable for them? 
not dissimilar than for a novel. So let's go with an example. If I am asking you tomorrow morning to go and climb the Mount Everest, I'm not sure you're going to like that idea. <laughs> no, okay. probably not. And so what's the feeling you're going to have? If I push you and say, now we're going, the flight is booked for Kathmandu. Terror. Terror, yeah. Absolutely. And possibly anger. Definitely. Okay, so I'm not your father. Um, imagine now that you have a father or a mother telling you this is what you're going to do. You're powerless over reacting to that, but you nevertheless have the terror. And it's very difficult to come across a parent decision because they have an authority here. So you're going to have to put up with that and swallow your terror. So we go back to the nursery. It's a very good point. Um, we make choices very early about applying for a nursery and it seems to be a good nursery. Probably true. Why? Because we've got friends who just sharing that they have good, good experience there. Da, 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 da. There's some reviews, a few likes on social media. Right. So that's probably true. Now, how do we know that our children, our child, is going to be a match for that nursery? No way. How do we know that our child is going to be fit and ready to leave the home, the house, the warmth of mummy and, and, or mummy and daddy, whatever, on that very day in September. And it's going to be thrown there. It's like jumping from the plane with a dodgy parachute. <laughs> now, um, why do I say that? Because I have a lot of clients, adult clients, who come in to see me and they remember. They remember the first day at nursery. And usually, well, they're coming to see me, so they have a problem usually, so they, they share a difficult, difficult experience in life. But however, what they share is absolutely, absolutely not happy clappy. Mm. They were in tears, they were shaking, they were afraid that mommy's not going to come back. It's problematic. Now, by itself, going to nursery is a good thing because you have to develop social skills. But it may not be the right time, it may not be the right nursery, it may be the wrong choice. So the question is, because you, you made an interesting point, you said that really until the late teens, you you know, child won't properly know what path they want to take. Well, obviously we have to make these decisions for our children a lot earlier. So are there any ways as a parent you think you can decipher if it is the right time for your child? I know that's a really difficult question, but as you say, doing things at the wrong time in the wrong way obviously does have an effect, even on a very small child. It will have an effect. Um, so the first, first observation, and we, we see the, um, the effect late, late in life. I mean, it's a um, old pain cast long shadows kind of thing, you know, it's just coming back and back. Now, what can we do as parents? Um, well, the first thing we have to do is question our motives. Why this nursery? Why this school? Why those choices? Are we being selfish here? Are we projecting a social project onto our children? Is that the good thing to send our child to this place or this place, this nursery, this um, school or this other school um, from their perspective? Are we just 
trying to cover ourselves with some sort of pride here? Is it just because this is what we do? Now, you may be aware of what we call the boarding school syndrome and all, all the voices that are rising more and more in the UK, which is the last country in the world to still keep as a normalized phenomena to send children to boarding school. It is not. We have millions of pages of research showing how it damages people. Science is clear. Medical world is clear. Social workers are clear. Politicians are clear. Sociologues are clear about that. It is damaging. Now, despite that, people still believe this is the right thing to do. Question, why do we believe that? I'm not even challenging the, 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 the accuracy of the belief. It doesn't really matter. Why leads, what, what, what leads a parent to believe this is the right thing to do? And when I'm asking the question, most of the time, it's, well, this is what we deserve in our social class, or this is what we do. It's an absolute lack of questioning. So we actually uh, favor more the social norm, normative choice compared to the interests of the child. So basically what you're saying is here, it is we get just swept along by what society dictates that you should do in a certain situation. Mm -hmm. And actually the best thing to do as a parent, if you really want to do something that works better potentially for the child, is to question why you're making the decision. Now when you do that questioning, what are the motives that you think will be beneficial to the child? Or the motives we should aspire to have? So the central question here is, is to look at the 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 the, the priority of the attachment between the child and the parent. Everything that is creating a, a, a rupture, a detachment, an abandonment between the parent and the child has to be looked at very carefully. In a natural way, we have to be around our parents for the seven, maybe nine first years of our life. Not 24-7, but the core of the nucleus of the family system is not a dorm. It's in-house with mom and dad. So it's absolutely okay to go a few hours a day at the nursery to explore the outer world, as long as the psychology and the, the effect of the child can take it. And that's very individual. So whatever goes against a premature detachment from mom and dad, is really to be to be questioned twice. Sometimes we don't have choice. So again, don't get me wrong. I'm very mindful that the society we live in implies that mom and dad are working at home uh, during the day. So they leave at eight thirty, they come back at five thirty, six o'clock, and that's the way it is. So we we cannot go against that. But we have to make choices inside those, those constraints that are not create, creating an abusive, early, premature detachment. And how can you, so say for example, I was to take my son to nursery, inevitably a normal reaction from him, especially in the first, you know, the early week or so, is he's not going to be happy about it because it will be the first time where he will have been alone without someone that he knows very well as one of his caregivers. 
And I think pretty much any child in the early stages of nursery will exhibit stressed behaviour. So at what point do you think that that is abnormal in a child? So if you're a parent and you're concerned that it's the wrong time, are there things to look for that maybe might mean you need to actually review whether or not this is a the right place and b you know the right time for that child so let's look at the parent feelings when leaving the child at, at the nursery i've hardly seen or heard a mother doing that happy clappy it seems to be generating a lot of feelings rightly so let's put ourselves into the shoes of a poor little boy, poor little girl, who has not got all the development and maturity to make sense of all that. It must be excruciating. So it's normal. <laughs> That's the answer. It is normal. But it is meant to happen because, because at some point the child has to understand that he or she is not 100% attached to mom or to dad. Now... Good nursery is a nursery where, where the, uh, the staff is aware of that and we regulate that. Um, we also have probably to look at ourselves as parents because if we are overly sad and, and devastated by doing so, the child's normal reaction is, oh, what's going on here? Mommy is in tears because she's dropping me off at the nursery and I'm also in tears. There's something wrong here. They're not stupid, huh? There's something yeah. fundamentally wrong. So I deserve an explanation. So where is the explanation coming from? This woman I never met who's gonna tell me everything's gonna be okay, go and play with your little friends. That's not very credible. The explanation has to come from the one I trust most in life, mom or dad. Now, can we explain properly our children what's going on here is we are, if we are infused and covered with shame and sadness and tears, some, at some point there's something to really or unprocessed here. Let's go back, step back, pose and revisit all that gently. So what you're saying is whether or not it's the right timing has a lot to do with whether or not it's the right timing for the main caregiver as well. Partly yes. That's interesting. We have to be ready for that. It's a matter of time that the children are picking up on parents' feelings all the time. Um, even if you don't display them, they, they're tuned. So it's a matter of time. Um, the, the child is going to go, what's wrong here? And it's also might be a matter of time that the, the child takes overtakes responsibility here. And that comes ties in into this this problem of willing the best for our children. If we push them too fast, and we don't respect their own lifespan and journey in life, as in pressure in school, pressure in results, pressure in nursery. Nursery is not dissimilar than going to secondary school. It's just a bit more early in in. The fabric is different, but the same problem. We're pushing them too fast. And then what's happening in that, um, well, they're panicking. Um, they, they cannot do it, it's too early. So we are actually, for the sake of the best, asking our children to perform an impossible task. It happens at the nursery. If, if, we are not, if I'm not ready to, to, to drop off my child at the nursery, and the, the child is not neither ready to be autonomous, we are asking them to perform a too difficult task. It's not dissimilar from um, you know, jumping a class. 
too early. And then, then you've got those math problems to resolve and you're not ready. It's exactly the same problem happening to your three instead of your 12. And then I guess it becomes a vicious circle because if you're pushed into something you're not ready for, you're, infer- you know, you're going to feel inferior, less than, which will just continue the cycle going. It does. With low self-esteem, that is now becoming a trait rather than a state, it's reinforced. It creates um, rebellion, anger, disruption on one hand, which is a reactive process or it creates a process of numbing and isolation and we observe that when we, we look we look uh, we've got some piece of research with videos looking at the behaviors of, of three four five years old children at the nursery and you can see that some of them some of them are okay most of them are probably okay on the window we can scratch that a bit and double check but some of them are not are clearly not okay they isolate they don't socialize they are tearful, um, they're regressing, they start peeing, wetting their pants again. We see that. Um, or some of them are very quickly thrown into angry reaction because they're not happy to be there. So they're going to express the anger as the seed of bullying. Ah, oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, so the first thing you said, obviously, is that the parent has to be in the right mindset and ready for the child to, to go because obviously... If you're not, your own emotions are going to transfer to that child and that child will have an extra level of distress. Mm -hmm. But then the second thing is, is you need to watch how that child is in that environment, I guess, for a period of time. So what are you saying? Maybe if a child starts a nursery and still a couple of weeks into starting, these behaviours start to emerge. Is that a sign that you would look for? I think this is what we have to look at in the first month of integration. So again, um, it's not about a good nursery. It's about a good, um, a good nurse in the nursery looking after my child. It doesn't matter who is there. It's about who is looking after my child. So how do we check that? Well, first of all, we, we, we make a due diligence and, and we prepare ourselves as parents. We think about it. But we don't decide it's going to happen. We prepare our options. And then we make sure everyone's ready. And then we try. With, with no um, necessity to, to, to enforce it, to succeed, to, enforce, to, to, you know, to, to, to prove ourselves we were right by leaving our children there so that we are proven that we made the right decision because that's the problem also. We want to prove ourselves right. Okay, I want the best for my child. So the way I prove myself, I have achieved that is is to enforce the success, to push it, push it, push it. So I can confirm my doubts or infirm my doubts and I can go, well, I did the right thing. And then we look at the child and the child is exhausted, (laughs) scared, burned out because the child has one problem. He cannot say no. And that's the main problem here, in that we, we have to make choices for our children, right? There's no problem with that. But because the child cannot say no, it's a huge responsibility. But I guess, as you say, that's in a way, the nursery um, situation is a microcosm of this bigger situation mm-hmm. that we were talking about in the news, where, you know, in this desperation to kind of push it all through to enforce success, we end up you know, without meaning to, 
damaging our children. So you said that, coming back to the nursery example, some of the things to look out for are if a child's isolating themselves, regressing, not socialising, very tearful. Is there anything else that you think, or are those really the kind of main things? So usually, good nurseries are going to look at that, huh? Right, yeah. uh, so it's, it's look after. Most of the time, they're going to report. Um, in, in when there's a problem like that, it's not the child failing. It's probably something else going on. And it might be that, that the parents are not playing their role the right way, and usually the nursery is there to help. <clears throat> so I suppose the question here is, what do we mean by success? So, nursery example again. So, is success, who I have solved a problem here because I can go back to work, so the success is actually my success and not the child's success. Because I'm safe, I can go back to work, children is over there, child is over there, that's okay. So that's a wrong success. Um, another aim could be social integra integration. It's time for the child to start to socialize with peers. And it doesn't work because he's isolating or he's not you know, engaging and maybe he has disruptive reaction. It's not a fail. It's just that there is another problem to sort out. So again, <laughs> success is, is, is not exactly what we believe here. Success is to provide opportunity at the right time for our children to, to become um, better human beings, become the best version of themselves. Now, we use that terminology, best version of myself, in adulthood, but it works very well for children as well. So I guess the first thing is to be flexible and aware, self-aware, I guess, of your own motivations mm -hmm. and very, very aware of what's actually going on with the child versus what you perhaps would like to be going on. Yeah, and, and, and I'm aware that there are impossible choices because, because we, we live in, in a world where we sometimes don't have the choice. So we have to, to do the, you know, facilitate that to the best. The one important thing is, okay, dropping off the child at the, at the nursery is a, is a painful moment. Picking up the child at the end of the day at the nursery is also a very important moment. It's the moment of the reunion. It's not just leaving the car, um, <laughs> you know, vaguely parked somewhere and, and just rushing into and, and just um, uh, picking up the child as you will pick up a parcel at the post office. <laughs> but I know we're stressed. I know we, we don't have time. But it's about having time to get a debrief from the nurse. It's about also just bridging that moment onto the child, sitting down, saying, oh, you've been here today. You've been playing. Who are your friends? Do you want me to introduce to so-and-so? Um, spending a bit of time inside the space with the child. Um, are we going back home? I'm so happy to see you again. Um, and maybe sharing about your day as well. You know, mommy had to go to work because this is what happens and, and it's okay. I love you. It's not because I'm working that I don't love you. This kind of messages we, we brush away sometimes because we're in a hurry, because we're exhausted, because it's the end of the day. And because maybe we, we don't realize how much it is important for the child. The child doesn't know about the adult world. He knows, I had a mom, mom, mom left me there, 
I had to cope with the, the, the friends, quote-unquote, and this lady looking after me. Mummy's back. So this is when mummy is telling me again, I love you. I matter to her. Let's do it. So you make it all around as most positive experience mm. as you can. Yeah. Yeah. So coming back to this whole, you know, definition of success, and I think as you very succinctly put it, really success is actually providing a child with opportunities and opportunities to find what makes them happy and what makes them work the best. But this whole notion of kind of societal success is ultimately one that a parent has and not one that a child has. So what do you think, and obviously different people are you know, affected by it in different ways. So taking it away from the child a little bit and going on to the parent, what do you think, you know, when, when you, if, if you're as a parent yourself and you're trying to ascertain whether or not your vision of success is good or not, what would you say if you're trying to be self-aware? Would you bring it back to this whole thing that it's got to be about, you know, what's best for the child or, and, and how much do you balance the societal pressure? Because one of the bits of feedback that I had from somebody is that, you know, it is very hard not to get swept up in this whole societal bandwagon and everyone else is doing it. And, you know, you don't want your child, quote unquote, to miss out. And you there's a very conflicting thing. So it's actually quite hard sometimes in real life practice to really know, you know, what the right thing to do is. It is actually very hard because um, we, we know we know how hard life can be in a society and obviously the child doesn't know. And there's truth in that. There's also truth in the fact that we will have, or the child will have to live in society. And so we have to prepare them. So part of, part of knowing, wanting the best to our children is to equip them with skills. But it's very different. Equipping a, um, a child with skills is very different to go that route compared to I want my child to make a lot of money. It's not exactly the same thing. One is an end game goal putting a huge pressure with a fear of failing daddy, failing mommy, failing myself onto the child. Whereas giving tools and equipment, as we say technically, um, is 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 um, is well it gives no pressure actually, it gives more opportunity. So I suppose that in, in layman terms, it's about trying to keep the maximum open options for our children. And that is basically for them, for then them to guide a little bit more towards the direction. Now, at what point, because it's quite hard, you know, you obviously talk about, you know, very young children from nursery, and then we've talked about the older. And obviously it's, it's, not exactly linear about how much we give them autonomy. Um, but of course, as a child gets older, we do give them more scope to kind of indicate the direction that's right for them. What would you say is from a kind of age kind of bracket that you start to let the child lead a little bit more? Because obviously very young children, it's quite hard to let them lead with exactly what they want to be doing. Cognitive autonomy 
develops around um, what is the cultural process, but we start to have um, a good autonomy around nine, ten years old. So this is when the child starts to to make informed choices. Before that, it's it's the mere influence of the parents. There's maybe siblings, different things. Um, so I would say there is probably a, in the lifespan something happening again. Difficult to say, but around eight, nine, ten years old. So this is when we can start having conversation about preferred choices and try to explore with the child what is problematic in that domain, what is easy in that domain. This is when we start to to see um, choices about sports, um, different different um, domains at school, choices about friends as well. Um, I like this guy, I don't like this one. We have that before, but it starts to be more informed in, in, in autonomous in the cognitive reasoning. And this is also probably the age where we can start to get the child to make sense of his effect and emotions. So this we start to have a good wiring between the thinking machinery and the feeling machinery in the brain. So before that, I think I think before that we just have to go with the flow in 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 try try to make sure that the, the child is kept in a safe environment. There's not much more to be done. And I guess as you said, observation. So and not worrying that pivoting on a decision you've made will be a reflection of, you know, this quote-unquote failure. Yeah. So, you know, taking this again, this nursery school child, so it is just a case of watching them, seeing how they react for a period of time, and then perhaps looking to address that if it doesn't look like it's something that's working. Yeah, maybe you change the nursery, maybe you change, or maybe you step back and you go, okay, we'll do it next year. Well, there's many options here. Um, given life, life allows it, so you know, social and work life. Um, I think, okay, we, we, let me put it another way. Um, we both have a past in um, corporate world, right? So I think we have an understanding about something called burnout, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. So it's, 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 it's common sense to adulthood. Now I can promise you that's very easy even easier to burn out a child. Now we never think of burnout concept when it comes to child because it seems to be something about adult at work. Now burnout is not about work, burnout is about brain. <laughs> now a young brain is fragile. Let's put it that way. As parents we have seen our children in the evening coming back from an afternoon by some friends where we've been there adult and there's been I don't know eight ten children playing together and in the way back the child is in the back seat on this little baby seat and he is crying he's difficult he's throwing things away um, a way of for the child maybe to be cynical <laughs> um, and it's very difficult oh you are hard work ever crossed your mind that this could well be a moment of burnout? Mm. And that actually brings me to my next question in so far that a lot of this kind of desperation for success and academic achievement that goes on seems to be coming much more hand in hand, especially in some of the bigger cities with 
people getting tutors for their kids so you have a full day at school and then you have tutors and I feel like sometimes from what I've heard from other people that now it's become so commonplace that if you don't have a tutor then your child could you know fall behind and again no one wants to put their child in a situation where they fall behind so you know clearly we are getting much more into the realms of possible burnout especially for a young brain so what are some of the things to watch out for for this kind of burnout because some some children might thrive on that as you said everyone's individual so what are some of the things that could be a signal that your child is experiencing some form of burnout rage <laughs> reaction um or, or on on one end of the spectrum on the other end um numbness silence withdrawal so despondency in Dis- general yeah. yeah so we basically have have very very angry reactions or very depressed reactions um and um, now the problem is if if it is needed to have a tutor to reinforce by several hours a day um, the, the learning moments in order to match the expectation from the school. Either we have to challenge the school's expectation vis-a-vis a child, either we have to challenge the, challenge the quality of the pedagogy, because children, are, children and, and, and young adolescents are absolutely eager to learn. Huh? We are learning machines, there's no doubt. So there's something not conveyed the right way. And it's not because our children are stupid. It's not because they're lazy. It's because something is not working here. So instead of judging and blaming and naming and reinforcing by bringing a plaster on the problem and bringing another layer on another layer on probably sandpit, let's address the problem, what's going on there. So you think it's a symptom or a signal of a deeper problem, so either a problem that the expectations put on are not right for that child, or that the child is having a problem with something else and is not having Worthwhile it. checking. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then there's another aspect here. We measure success with academic results. I mean, it's not a bad thing, it's a way to measure it. But how do we make sense that more than ever today, Academic success is not a predictor of professional success. Yeah, that's a tricky one because it seems more and more there's these dropouts from whichever schools that go on to become, you know, absolutely ragingly successful. But do you think that that is because it has become more common and it's become more rigid and it's not allowing creativity? Or do you think that... There are other reasons why this whole notion of academic success is not necessarily the be-all and end-all. So we're coming from a place for the last last fifty years where the the scale of 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 the scale of of capacity to achieve was based on IQ, and IQ intellectual quotient has something to do with logical brain, capacity to solve logical problem, and has something to do with academic teaching. And we realize that um, success comes in life from emotional quotient as much as intellectual quotient. So there's, there's a new school of psychology and in, 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 in also a new school of, of you know, corporate management 
looking at the emotional side of it, we call that emotional intelligence, at no point dedicating our energy and our time as a team to academic is going to help the development of emotional intelligence. I'm a byproduct of all that. Um, I, I, I was very academic. I've been, I've been pushed into that direction many times. My emotional intelligence, even though I'm a shrink, is still extremely low <laughs> compared to my intellectual uh, quotient, whatever it is. Um, so um, I, something has been missed here. And I was pushed. I was, uh, you know, I had the, the French equivalent of A-level at 16 years old. Wow. End of my, I had my, my birthday was a month after. But anyway, because I'm from July. Um, so I felt, I felt, I felt an empowerment from that. I felt that I was, I was hyper-performing. And the reality is that Beyond that, I was probably depressed. I was emotionally um, running like a headless chicken with my emotions. And it took me 15, 20 years after a lot of work on myself to fill in the gaps. Why that? Because I am a pure product of what we're discussing today. Mm. My parents will praise me as, and affirm me and recognize me as long as I was a brilliant brain, producing brilliant ideas, solving problems, writing philosophy, to the point that even, and that's uh, alien to the English culture, sport was completely despised. I'm a pure product of that. And I believe that my parents, well, they wanted the best for me, but I think also they didn't have any clue of of, of anything else than that form of best. That's another thing. In that we also, we, we also go in with our belief system as parents. And I probably still believe for my children that they need to achieve high intellectual goals rather than anything else. So I have, as a parent, I have my job is to not to project my belief system onto them and to allow them to become whatever they want. And it took me, it took me a, a long period of time to understand that if, if one of my daughter wants to be a farmer and nothing wrong against farming, don't get me wrong, but that's not my tradition. Let's put it that way. It's not my family tradition. We're not farmers. We are intellectual lawyers, writers, uh, philosophers, whatever. And, and there's no better and worse. Than it. It's just two roots. I'm going to have to be okay with that as long as she's smiling. So being open-minded and open-minded to traditions that aren't necessarily one's own has got to be a massive starting point because I guess, as you say, as parents, we are conditioned to almost repeat what we ourselves have been exposed to. And a lot of the time, because as you said, historically, academia has been, you know, doing really well at school and getting into a good university mm. has been the absolute paramount. But maybe that's now changing. So. I guess number one has got to be being open-minded. Now, the other thing you mentioned is this development of emotional intelligence. Now, how as parents, I guess, other than doing it ourselves, <laughs> which has got to be a big thing, how as parents can we actually help develop that from you know very young childhood and above? 
accept that feelings are biologically interesting to life. It's, feelings are not an intellectual concept, uh, they experience in the body and the mind. So they are part of life. They actually preceded thoughts in the development of the human species. We, 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 we experienced fear before we thought about solving um, um, complex equations, problems. Um, so, so then what we, we do with that? We stop demonizing feelings. Feelings are extremely um, useful indicators about where we're at, what we can do, what's the next right action to take, associated with good thinking. Huh? But we, we have to talk about feelings. Don't be sad. Well, actually, when a child is crying his tears out of his eyes, he is sad. So what's the point telling him, don't be sad? So I guess the key is to find out why the child is sad. Now, do you think there is still very much a tendency by parents to suppress feelings, to you know, try and, I guess, smooth the volatility? Do you think that that's still something that's pretty widespread? Big time, big time. Because feelings are an embarrassment because they invite us to ask a question. Simple. Excuse my French. What's, what's the fuck going on here? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, feelings are an embarrassment mm. because they invite to that central question. There's something going on here we have to address. And it might not be easy. It might be problematic. It might be shaming. And, and so we, we, we are very comfortable when our children are achieving high quantifiable result. There's no feeling there. You got a good report from school. Yay, no feelings. Mm. So if the report is not good, we had a tutor. We had support, not to support the child, to support the report. <laughs> it's a bit sad to put it that way, yeah. but there's something like that. And then, and then, what do we have here? As a parent, we are hugely rewarded by the report, the school report, and this confirms that we're doing the right thing. Well, we're missing the bit here, which is the child in between, who is the agent of all that and might be absolutely unhappy. Now, um, you obviously mentioned about your own experiences whereby your academic prowess was prized above all else and your emotional well-being was just not really considered. Now, speaking more broadly, if that happens for a prolonged period for a child, what are the kind of common consequences into adulthood? Well, the first thing is that we, <laughs> we narrow down this chance of happiness because happiness or, or depends on this bizarre success called academic success, work success, and then we quantify that into the money. So then, then, then happiness becomes very dependent upon position, social position, work position, and money. And we're missing the rest of the other rest of happiness, which is yeah, to be to, to wake up in the morning and to smile to the world, to enjoy a good relationship, um, to have happy children, um, to, to be able to fish happiness in different ponds. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the, the chances to fail are high because the stakes are high. Stakes are really high if we go on that route. 
that we develop a sense of perfectionism. Perfectionism is, is something very simple. Everything that is not perfectly achieved is a fail. That's, that's very problematic because the odds are not good. So we're going to have a sense of failure. And when we have a chronic sense of failure, because we never satisfied with what we achieved, it is a matter of time, we're going to have a hit on our self-esteem. We're going to feel like shit. Whereas we're not. And sometimes we do better. Sometimes we, we miss a point. Sometimes it doesn't go the way we want. It doesn't mean we are shit. It just means life. So do you think that this perfectionism is in part generated by a parental kind of desire for all of these milestones to be achieved and then I guess the parental reaction when they're not achieved? Big time, Sarah. Um, so what's happening? Okay, there's a parent here, there's a child and the pressure is you have to be the best at school Otherwise, you're never going to make your living. You're going to end up in the gutter. Something really wrong is going to happen. This kind of threat, projection threat. A, B, daddy is going to be very disappointed. Aha, uh -huh, now comes the problem. And with all the money we're putting on you, the least you can do is to succeed. Now, let's put ourselves into the shoes of the child. There's not many options here. If I want still to be loved by daddy, I have to succeed. If I don't want to live with a gnawing guilt that I'm burning daddy's banknotes, I have to succeed. And if I don't want to starve and, and be homeless in the future, which apparently from the news I see on my iPad is not a very pleasant situation, I better succeed. Now, can you imagine the amount of stress here? Mm, yeah. And so I guess that elicits a desire to kind of please, which, as you yeah. say, you know, you can't always succeed in everything. And then, it's yeah. I think parenting is a lot about helping and making sense of the fail rather than priding everyone from the success or expecting the success. Fail is going to happen. And what is fail, by the way? <laughs> An ex you know, the not meeting the expectation set by the parents. I had the other day this, this, this patient, and he said, I was working really hard at school, but I was not very academic. I was good in artistic things, but not in math or whatever. And I was told off permanently at home. And I couldn't voice myself or find a voice to say, you know what, guys, as in mom and dad, I'm working my best here. I'm really, I'm really working hard. I just had to swallow, you stupid, my son. You're not good enough. Look at your friends. They're doing better. Look at our neighbor's children. And this guy was working 100%. I mean, from a perfectionist point of view, he was perfectly working. Now, he was not into math. That's all. But he was perfect in his deployment here. So when you say helping, you know, make sense of the fail, which is, I think, a really interesting way of looking at it. Now, I guess part of that is kind of some awareness. So if your child is really not doing very well at maths, for example, so is the first step, you know, as a parent being aware of why that's happening. So is it because the child is just 
not very good or is it that they're not interested or is it the wrong kind of teacher or yeah so it is it's a lot of awareness is it absolutely i mean we have to do our job mm. go and find facts instead of concluding my son is not capable or my daughter is not capable of there might be another problem here um i had a clarence once it took years and years to do the obvious check the vision and the sight he actually she had a, a very low um, um, eyesight and distant vision sight so we did the, the obvious then when she was 10 or they did the obvious <clears throat> they just changed the setting in the class and all of a sudden the marks were great but it took years for the parents to realize that she was, you know, 25% blind, actually. Oh, wow. But she wouldn't know because she had no point of comparison as a child. She was just dealing with life, being a bit clumsy. And, and, and the, 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 the intellectual effort she had to deploy at school to stay attentive when she couldn't read the, the blackboard. But she never thought that others would not. Yeah. No one checked. Deaf as well. Mm. <laughs> and just... So... We want the best for children, but we're not even checking the obvious. So I guess be curious and be sensitive and be aware. Thank you so much, Christoph, for such an informative discussion. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Christoph or get more information on this subject, check out www.icad.com. Christoph is academic director there. Or, of course, betterbabies.com. Now, we would love to hear from you, so if you've got any questions or comments or further topics you'd like us to cover, please, please do give us a shout. So you can reach out either on email, sarah at betterbabies.com, or on Instagram, at sarahbetterbabies. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do give us a shout out and a rating. Uh, we really appreciate it. And thanks so much for listening. Bye.